While the kids are being dismissed to Kids Church, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, and beginning with verse 1. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5 this morning. So Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. It, over the uh, last several weeks, um, we have been in uh, chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul has been making a case for our justification by faith on the basis of what the text says. Not just something that he says, but it's actually what the Scripture says. Now, as an apostle who is commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had the authority to say, this is what salvation is. It's justification by faith. But what he does in chapter 4 is he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And he takes that great figure that the Jewish people and that we still esteem today, Abraham. And he says that Abraham was not justified by works, he was justified by faith. Or in other words, that he was made right. He was put into a right relationship with God by faith, not the works that he did. And then when we got to the end of chapter 4, In verses 22 through 25, Paul argued from Scripture that Abraham's faith was credited to him to righteousness. It was an accounting term. He didn't have righteousness, so it was credited to him. And then we find in this text that it was not just written for him alone, but for all believers. And so the Old Testament and the encounters that they had with God and the law and all that we find in the Old Testament is it's not some static old out-of-date book that means nothing to us today. It was actually written for our benefit and for our example. And so we find that this idea of justification by Abraham has great bearing on our life today. Abraham was justified by faith. We are justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. In which And now that the idea of justification by faith is established, that what Paul's going to do is he's going to move on in chapter 5 and verse 1, and it's going to go all the way to chapter 8 and verse 39, and he speaks about the blessings of justification. The blessings of justification. So look with me in Romans 5, beginning verse 1, and here's what God's Word says. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and hope and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He was given to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word this morning. And we ask that you will help us to see all that you want us to see. And I pray the prayer of John the Baptist that I may decrease so that you may increase. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we're going to be focusing and looking at, in this text, the blessings of justification. And here in verse 5, these Uh, five verses alone, there are four blessings that the Apostle Paul describes as a consequence of our justification by faith. 
Now, as we encounter verse 1, and we notice that there is a therefore. And whenever we see a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And so it signals the conclusion of Paul's argument regarding justification by faith using the Old Testament to make his point, which included Abraham and David. And now for the first time in this letter, Paul includes himself with his recipient. Now, if you'll notice there, in verse 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So in, in the short 11 verses in chapter 5, going from verse 1 to verse 11, we occur 16 times. This is the first time as Paul has been writing all this for four chapters that he actually inserts himself into this, this letter. We now have peace with God. And what this does, it establishes his point. A point that he makes back in chapter 4 is that there, are, there is not any difference between Jews and Gentiles. They are all God's people. They are children of Abraham justified by faith. Now, the argument for justification has been made, and now Paul presents it as a statement of fact. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. It's a statement of fact. This is the reality of the Christian life, that when you repent of your sins, and you trust in Jesus Christ, you are brought into a right relationship with God. You are giving a righteousness that does not belong to you. In fact, the only thing that we have is sin and transgressions. But by faith, God justifies us, and he gives us a righteousness that does not belong to us. And the the confidence that we can find in this, especially as as the way that it's I presented here in verse 1 as a statement of fact is that God justifies in the here and now. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ can know that on the day of judgment that God will say, you are righteous, enter into my kingdom. That it is a present reality that yes, we can walk around and say, we are righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to qualify when we talk about our righteous, that we are righteous in the Lord. We're not righteous in our own standing, but we are righteous because of what Christ has done, how he has lived the perfect life for us, and as he paid the penalty for our sins. And we will find on that day, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, it will be clear. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus are indeed righteous, perfect righteousness before a thrice holy God. And it is not our righteousness that is inherent or infused by good works, but it's imputed. It is a righteousness that is given. It is a gift, a righteousness that is not our own. It is the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because this justification is a statement of fact, because it's a reality in our life now, that means that we can live with assurance and hope now that we are justified And that God has rejected any and all charges brought against those whom he justifies. As the Apostle Paul will say later on in Romans 8 and verse 33 when he asked these rhetorical questions. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is risen at the right hand of God and who makes intercession for us. 
So who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. And so we can live with the sense of confidence in knowing that we are right before God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now with this reality of justification by faith alone, the blessing of God's salvation through Jesus Christ follows. So we're going to see this blessing. And the first blessing that's enumerated by Paul is peace with God. As with justification and the blessings that follow, we're going to see the blessing of how we have access and how we have hope. And also, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but we also rejoice in suffering. That's going to be presented to us as a blessing. But all of these, as it is with justification, is a present and ongoing reality in the believer's life. So we say, we can say, yes, we have peace with God when? Now. We have peace with Him now. Now, what does Paul specifically mean when he talks about the concept of peace? And I think what he means is he's speaking more on the objective level. To say objectively that we have peace with God, we have peace with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this means is that at one point of time in our life, if we're not a believer, we're still at this point, but if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at one point in our life that we were at enmity with God, we were enemies of God, we were haters of God, and there was no peace between us and God. And what has brought disruption and what has brought the, the absence of peace in a person's life is sin. Sin strikes at the very heart of our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with others. But because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his blood that was shed for us, now we have peace with God. That's an objective reality. We can say that we have peace. In the Old Testament, peace is often associated with God's covenant relationship with his people. And the ironic blessing, the priests were to regularly pronounce upon the congregation peace, which is the result of Yahweh's actions of being gracious and sharing his favor. So through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a real relationship that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Since relationally there is peace with God, then peace ought to carry over in all of our lives. It ought to be the objective as we live our lives with peace with God that we should have peace with all people, particularly peace with those who are fellow believers, but also, if at all possible, to have peace with all people that we encounter in the world. So I want us to think objectively about this peace. We have peace with God. There is peace between us and God right now. Right? It's more than just a feeling. Because there's going to be times in your life where you don't feel that peace. That whenever you go through the difficulties and the travails of life, that you don't always have that peace of mind. That's a subjective feeling. I want you to rest on the objectivity of peace. You, you cannot pronounce peace upon your life on the basis of what you feel. Pronounce peace on your life on the fact of your relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, although this text is primarily about this objective peace that we have now between us and God, it also has implications, subjectively speaking, in regards to how we feel. When there is peace with God, it will naturally have an effect on one's whole 
disposition. Mind, our emotions, our body, we will find a sense of peace. Just think about it. With the weight of sin and guilt and judgment gone, there can be tranquility in life. Think about what it must feel like, not only spiritually, but emotionally, and even physically, that we are no longer fighting God. Even though people might not assume this is what they are doing, fighting God, but when you live your life contrary to how God has designed, when you live your life as though you're autonomous, when you try to make your own decision, when you chart your own course or your own destiny, you are essentially fighting God. You're essentially living contrary to how God has designed you. And when there's finally peace with God and you, when you begin to follow him, then it brings peace to your life. Now, this is not to say that you will always have peace in mind. In fact, Paul himself admits to feeling utterly, unbearably crushed, despairing life, suffering and anxiety for all of his churches and having sorrow upon sorrow. So with peace, we cannot fall back on what we feel. We must fall back on what is true. And what is true is if we have been justified by faith, we no longer stand under the wrath of God, but have peace through the cross. And that is indescribable peace to know that. To know that we do not stand under the wrath of God, that we do not stand in judgment by God, but we now have peace with him. So we have the blessing of peace. And secondly, we have the blessing of access. If you'll notice in verse 2, it says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace. And so the blessing continues with access to God. Now, Paul only uses access here, this word that's translated access here, and two times in Ephesians. Once in uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 18, which says, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, And then Ephesians 3 and verse 12, which says, according to the eternal purpose which we accomplished, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And the meaning of access has a connotation of royalty, signifying entrance into the audience chamber of the King of Kings. Just think about what it would be like to be able to have access to Buckingham Palace. Or maybe what it, would like, what it would be like to have access to come and go as you please into the Oval Office. This, this indescribable access in, in some of the most guarded places in the world. And yet we can come and we can go as we please. Justification leads to unfettered access to the Creator. The one true King, the Sovereign, and the Judge of the living and dead. And this access has a twofold basis. If you'll notice there in the text, the basis is through whom, and the referent to whom is speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ that we see in verse 1, and faith. So we have access through Jesus Christ by faith. That We're looking away from ourselves and we're looking to God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us this access. And with this access comes a standing. Where do we stand? We stand in the realm of grace. We have our being. We have our existence. We live in the context of God's grace. We no longer live in the realm of sin. 
and the realm of the law, that the burdensome law, you look at that law and you see all of your shortcomings, you see all of your problem. We no longer live in the realm of the dead, but we stand in God's grace, which leads to righteousness and to life. That's the kind of access that we want to have. We want to have access to the king, that we can go to the king. In fact, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who now sits at the right hand of God and he reigns and he makes intercession on behalf of us. So we have this unbelievable access with God through the portion of the Lord Jesus Christ and we stand in the realm of grace, of God's gracious goodness and favor toward us. So we have access. And then thirdly, we have the hope of glory. So moving from the current blessings of justification, our eyes are lifted to see what lies ahead. The hope of glory. So the idea of justification and peace and access, these are present realities. And now what Paul is going to do is he's going to push our vision further. Let's look beyond what is presently true of us and look what lies ahead for us. So now we can joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting here is I think most of your translations have the word rejoice there in the latter part of verse 2 and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I think some of you may actually have the word boast. We boast in the glory of God. And so this word translated rejoice is, is not the normal word for rejoice. And it's actually the same word that's used in chapter 3 and verse 21, where Paul said that all boasting in the law is to be excluded. And then in chapter 4 and verses 2 through 3, Abraham had nothing to boast about because he believed God rather depending on his work. So we are forbidden to boast in ourselves, which is pride, yet encouraged to boast in God, And what he has accomplished. And specifically in this text, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, the final glory that we will share in the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the ages. Our hope, as in the word hope is used here in verse four, it's used in verse five, it's used all throughout Romans, but our hope is a glorious trust and an anticipation of the promises of God in regards to the believer's glorification. The glory of God that we will share is the illumination of the believer's whole being by the radiant of the divine glory that was lost through sin. And this glory will be restored when the believer's salvation will be consummated at the end of the ages. And with this glory means the removal of all the things that we're dragging around here in this life here and now as a consequence of sin. With God's glory means this complete transformation of our not only of our mind, of our heart, of our, our inner being, of our person, but even our body. We are giving a glorious body, a body that is not affected by sin and decay, but a body that is made to live from everlasting to everlasting. And with this glory also is the loss of, of sickness and pain and sufferings and, and all the things that we face in the context of this life. And so the basis of our justification, since we are now justified by faith, we can look ahead and know that because we stand in a right relationship with God, that we will receive the glory. We will share 
in the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive his kingdom, that inheritance that lays ahead for us. And, and the way that we live with that is we live with that with this anticipation, which is hope. We have this hope that we cannot see it, but we know that it is true. So we have the hope of glory. And then also notice the fourth thing that we find in this text that we have as a blessing. What seems rather odd, in fact, most of the text is taken up with this, which is in verses 3 through 5. So we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Then notice in verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. That's the same word that translated rejoice in verse 2. It's just a normal word for boast. We can understand the idea, yes, we boast in the glory of God, the hope of the glory, but boasting in trials, boasting in sufferings, seeing those things as good things in our life, I don't think so, Paul. So, there's, I mean, it's an incredulous statement when you think about it. I mean, it is expected for us to boast in the future glory precisely because sufferings are no more. Suffering is painful, distressful, and hard. Why would anyone boast in that? And the answer to this question is based on what we should know, which is rather interesting if you'll notice here in the text. He says, and knowing that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing. So Paul is going back to what we should already know to be true about the Christian life and about how God is working in our life and through our life. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to reinvigorate, if you will, our knowledge or maybe remind us or, or, or pick this knowledge back up. So ultimately, what we should know is that suffering leads to galvanizing, fortifying the believer's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll find in this text as it goes from verse 3 to verse 5 that there is an unfolding chain that moves from suffering to hope. You move from suffering from hope. So notice what happens first in this, this chain. So it's, it's think, just imagine a, some, a, a chain. You've got each chain. And so we start with the first one, which is suffering produces perseverance and endurance. So if you'll notice there, tribulations produces perseverance. Now just, just think just for a moment about this word tribulation. It's a rather generic word. That can mean any kind of suffering, any kind of difficulty that people go through. And I think it's intentional by Paul in the way that he uses this. But I also think we need to be reminded of the type of tribulation that the church was going through in the early first century. They, they were going through sufferings as a consequence of being a Christian. Just being a Christian. They were going through tribulations and suffering for their faithfulness to Christ and his church. And Paul is telling them that these sufferings that you're going through in your life, they are not for nothing. I think that's bad grammar, but we're just going to go with that. That these sufferings that you go through, that they have a point, there's an end game to it. And it is to fulfill God's glorious purpose in your life. And so with the suffering comes perseverance, and endurance. Those who undergo difficulties are grounded in such a way that they can withstand anything and everything that life throws at them. I think Paul makes a similar point 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6, when he says, If we are afflicted, it is for our comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering that we suffer. And so one of the ways that suffering helps us and reason that we should embrace suffering and even glory in suffering is because the suffering is going to fortify our faith and help us as we keep moving forward in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing like a trial in one's life that will drive them to Jesus. And as you drive yourself to Jesus, going deeper and deeper in your relationship with Jesus, it will produce perseverance and endurance for you to keep running the race. And for you to run in such a way that one of these days you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The first link is suffering produces endurance. And then second, perseverance will produce character. It's a term that's also found in James chapter 1 and 1 Peter 1, and it has a meaning of proven character by testing. In fact, the, the uses of this word has to do with the, the idea of refining uh, precious metals to purify them. So you, as, you, as you heat up a precious metal, whether it's gold or something, you're heating that up in order to purify it. And so that's the same thing that we find here in this text as it relates to character. Now, I think there are two ways to think about this character formed by persevering trials. Number one, how one responds to trials evidences the authenticity of their faith. Moral transformation in the face of suffering constitutes evidence that one has really been transformed by God's grace and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we are saved... We are saved to be transformed into the image of Christ. To inhabit his character, his thinking, his ways of life. To have a character that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you go through trials and that brings about perseverance. And then that begins to show your character. Because it's usually in the trials and the difficulties that you really see who people really are. Where their character is. Are they going to re- respond with a sense of graciousness? Or are they going to respond with a sense of bitterness and ugliness? And maybe even blaming God and, and going on and on with that. And so in trials, when you're persevering in trials, how one responds to trials evidences the authenticity, authenticity of their faith. Moral transformation in the face of suffering constitutes Evidence that one has really been transformed by God's grace. And number two, after one endures many difficulties, a strength of character develops that wasn't present beforehand. The third thing, the third link that we find is is that hope increases. Now, while it is easy to understand how suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character, it is difficult to explain how character produces hope. We might conclude that if the character produced by perseverance includes a greater trust in God, this in turn strengthens our hope of sharing in the glory and promise by God. This is a quote I found by Doug Moo that might be helpful, and he says it like this, Suffering, rather than threatening or weakening hope as we might expect to be the case, 
will instead increase our certainty and hope. Hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortify our hope and our constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparent, apparently hopeless circumstances will bring ever deeper conviction of the reality and certainty of that which is hoped for. And so to say it another way is that our hope or our, our suffering, what it does is as we go through suffering, we are forced to respond in hope. And as we respond in hope, it's like an exercise that we do, and we just get stronger and stronger and stronger as we continue to assimilate hope in our life. And we find something specific about this hope that is really helpful, that this hope will not disappoint or be put to shame as we see in verse 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. You will never be disappointed. You will never regret putting your eyes on Jesus Christ and having hope in him in all of life. You will never regret it. I don't think you will regret it in this life, and you definitely won't regret it in the life to come. You will not be put to shame for having hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the present, people may question our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ during suffering. They may even mock our hope. They may belittle our hope. They may think that we've lost our mind. But we will not be disappointed. We will not be put to shame. It's much like when Jesus was on the cross and people were mocking him. The Lord Jesus continued to trust and hope in God and he did not disappoint, did he? Because on the third day he rose again and then God vindicated him by receiving him at his ascension and giving him a position of honor and authority. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was not put to shame. And when he comes again, every eye will see him, every eye will behold him, and those who pierced him, they will be put to shame. But those of us who hope and trust in Jesus Christ, we will not be disappointed. Will we be happy that we trusted and hoped in the Lord Jesus Christ? And the proof of this claim is the love of God that is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We know that this hope is true. We know that we won't be disappointed because of the hope of God. Because of the love of God that has been poured out by His Spirit. Now just think just for a moment about this idea of love being poured out. The imagery here. When I think about being poured out, especially as it relates to God, His love, I'm thinking of a waterfall. So God holds nothing back. He showers us with His love. And the gift of the Holy Spirit demonstrates that believers will be spared from God's wrath to come. Now going back to this logical chain that progresses from suffering to hope, this only works if one responds appropriately. But notice in the text, Paul actually left out conditions. He didn't say when you suffer, if you endure, then character, if character, then hope. In fact, he actually makes it as a statement of fact, as though that the believer will move from suffering to hope. Why does he do this? He knows that God will overcome the believer's tendency to wilt under pressure. Much like what we saw in Abraham's life, 
In chapter 4 and verse 19, not being weak in faith. And then in verse 20, he did not waver. We know from Genesis that Abraham's faith was tested at time and that his faith was less than ideal. But God carried him through. So in the same sense, God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit whom he poured out will carry us from suffering to the hope of glory. We only move from suffering to hope, not by looking to ourselves, but looking to the Lord Jesus who has justified us by faith and given us peace with God. Let's pray together.